listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 259 of Belaboured, our podcast about the wide world of work and why it so often sucks. This is also episode two of our five-episode series on work and COVID. Two years into the pandemic, it has changed the way we work and been the impetus for plenty of exciting worker organizing. So for the rest of the year, we'll be talking in depth with people who work in industries that have borne the brunt of the risk, the pain, and the grief of the pandemic. This week, we talked to delivery workers in the U.S. and England, the people we all relied on to bring us food and supplies during lockdowns and beyond. And before we begin, we just want to remind you once again that if you appreciate our independent labor journalism and want to support our work and want to see us continue doing series like these, you can contribute to our small production team by going to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And there you can get some free swag with your monthly donation created by activist artist Molly Crabapple. And now the news. Last week, Elon Musk, who appears to be once again the world's richest man, even though he just blew $44 billion on something he's about to break, took the reins at Twitter, and it predictably immediately went to hell, with massive layoffs, a surge in racism and abuse, the departure of several advertisers, and of plenty of users. While we'll be keeping tabs on what happens as Musk tries to do whatever it is he's trying to do. And as always, if you work at Twitter or Tesla or any other Elon Musk company, we want to hear from you. This week, I want to talk about another story involving another of the world's occasionally richest people and worst bosses. A lawsuit was filed against Jeff Bezos in Seattle last week by his former housekeeper, Mercedes Wada. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong alleging that housekeepers were subjected to unsafe and unsanitary conditions, barred from rest breaks and easy access to bathrooms. What is it with these guys in bathroom access? The lawsuit also alleges racial discrimination against Latinx housekeeping staff in favor of white ones. NBC News writes, quote, Weta was hired in fall 2019 for a housekeeping job that required her to work around a family without being seen, the civil action says. She was hired as house coordinator and would eventually come to supervise a staff of housekeepers, nearly all of whom were Hispanic, according to the complaint. In addition to extended work shifts as long as 14 hours with no breaks, there was no reasonably accessible bathroom for the housekeepers, the lawsuit says. At one point, housekeepers were told to use a restroom attached to a security room where guards monitored security cameras on the property, the suit claims. However, that was soon stopped because it was decided that the housekeepers using the bathroom was a breach of security protocol, according to the action. For about 18 months, in order to use a bathroom, plaintiff and other housekeepers were forced to climb out the laundry room window to the outside, the lawsuit claims, then run along the path to the mechanical room, through the mechanical room, and downstairs to a bathroom. This toilet was used by both men and women. For example, ground staff used it too, end quote. The lawsuit names Bezos, as well as two companies which manage his properties, Zephram LLC and Northwestern LLC. Northwestern and Bezos' attorney naturally dispute the conditions named in the lawsuit, saying that the staff had access to break rooms and other facilities. There will no doubt be much more about all of this in the future, but I thought it was worth noting how these allegations mirror the conditions that workers have complained of in Amazon warehouses and Amazon delivery drivers have also complained of. Or, well, you know, all sorts of other super exploited workers. Long hours, bullying and verbal abuse, no breaks, and especially no bathroom breaks. So we will uh, keep up with this story. 
So this episode coincides with the midterm elections, and honestly, we weren't super enthusiastic about covering the midterms because they were expected to be fairly depressing and kind of were. But I'll highlight a few victorious pro-labor ballot measures. First, several states voted on measures that would officially abolish slavery or force labor in prisons. Yes, in the year 2022, the outlawing of slavery is still an issue that needs to be put to a public vote in America. Voters in Alabama, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont voted to prohibit involuntary servitude in state prisons. Louisiana also voted on a similar ballot initiative, but the lawmakers who crafted it ended up telling people to vote it down due to a flaw in the text of the measure. According to the Associated Press, quote, the four approved initiatives won't force immediate changes in the state's prisons, but they may invite legal challenges over the practice of coercing prisoners to work under the threat of sanctions or loss of privileges if they refuse to work. Previously, ballot measures to ban forced labor in prisons passed in Colorado in 2018, then Utah and Nebraska in 2020. This year, Vermont was unusual in that its constitution already prohibits slavery for incarcerated people, but the ballot measure clarified that slavery is prohibited in any form. Currently, more than a dozen states permit some form of forced labor as punishment for a crime. There's a nationwide campaign underway to abolish slavery for incarcerated people writ large, That is being accomplished both by pushing through state-level reforms, like the latest ballot measures, and by demanding a change to the 13th Amendment of the Constitution. That amendment is the one that contains the infamous exception to the prohibition on slavery. It explicitly enables the government to impose slavery or involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime. That is the legal basis for the various state policies permitting mandatory work in prisons. And activists say that their long-term target is the 13th Amendment to fully and unequivocally abolish slavery for everyone imprisoned in the United States. Much of prison labor involves maintenance of the prison facility itself like custodial jobs. But some of this work is done for private corporations or state-run enterprises. According to the Abolish Slavery National Network, quote, incarcerated people are forced to work for private corporations, state-owned corporations, and correctional agencies, making an average of 86 cents per day, unquote. In addition, quote, every year over $14 billion in wages is stolen from incarcerated workers, depriving communities decimated by mass incarceration of economic stability, unquote. Another pro-labor ballot measure that passed on Tuesday is a referendum in Illinois that guaranteed collective bargaining rights for wages, hours, and working conditions. To my surprise, I learned that only three other states, New York, Missouri, and Hawaii, have enshrined the right to collectively bargain in their constitutions. By contrast, 10 states have enshrined right-to-work laws in their constitutions, which, as we've covered here and belabored before, prohibit so-called union security agreements at workplaces— That effectively allows workers to be employed at a unionized workplace without paying dues or fees to support the union, which in turn undermines the union and weakens its ability to effectively organize and represent workers. Tennessee just approved a ballot measure to codify its right-to-work law in its constitution. So all in all, it was kind of a wash on Tuesday, with one pro-union measure passing and one anti-union measure passing. But as always, what the state constitution does or doesn't guarantee is not the major factor that determines how workers organize on the ground in all these states. It often comes down to how well unions can organize and mobilize people at the workplace level. Last Friday, November 4th, was the 18th day of the strike by Newspaper Guild of Pittsburgh, Workers Against the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and the 30th day of the strike by Pittsburgh Post-Gazette Unions in Production, Distribution, and Advertising. 
And it was also a one-day strike of News Guild members across 14 Gannett-owned newsrooms from New York and New Jersey to Arizona and Southern California, as well as coordinated actions at other Gannett publications. The striking newsrooms include a couple in my old neighborhood in the Hudson Valley, the Journal News in Lowhud in Westchester County, and the Poughkeepsie Journal in Poughkeepsie, obviously. Journalism, you have heard us say on this show, kind of a lot, is under attack. And since I started off today talking about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, the latter, you will remember, owns the Washington Post, it's worth taking a moment to talk about what the treatment of news as a for-profit industry has done to news reporting. The consolidation of papers into companies like Gannett has edged out local reporting in favor of wire services, cut-and-paste stories, and a disconnect between the community and the workers. This, of course, means that fewer people feel obligated to subscribe to the papers, creating a vicious downward spiral, sort of like the one Elon Musk is enacting at Twitter. The News Guild press release on the Gannett strike says, quote, This action is in response to the company laying off 400 employees and cutting another 400 open positions in August, which represented 3% of staff, followed by additional cost-cutting austerity measures announced in October, which included furloughs and cuts to the 401k plan. These devastating cuts to local newsrooms come on the heels of Gannett announcing a $100 million stock buyback program for shareholders in February, directing critical funding away from local newsrooms and to rich shareholders. Last month, the Economic Policy Institute reported that CEO pay has skyrocketed 1,460 percent since 1978, and the average CEO is paid hundreds of times as much as a typical worker in 2021. Gannett is no exception. Gannett CEO Mike Reed receives an $8 million annual salary, 160 times the median salary of a Gannett worker. All the while, Gannett has been stalling on bargaining at various tables across the unionized newsrooms and not bargaining in good faith around demands for family wage salaries, adequate staffing, and diverse newsrooms. Many Gannett journalists have reported needing to rely on food banks and housing assistance to get by. End quote. The crappy condition of our news has effects that reverberate across the country and the world. While there are plenty of reasons for that, one big one is, of course, this push to profits. As you heard on episode 257, the decline of labor reporting is one of the many casualties of the turn towards business coverage and courting big bucks, rather than doing the reporting that matters to the people who actually, you know, live in cities and make them run. And while we're on the topic of labor coverage, both the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette workers and the Gannett workers are reviving one of my favorite strike traditions, the Strike newspaper, in this case, the Strike News website. You can check out the Gannett strike paper at gannettunions.org, that's G-A-N-N-E-T-T, unions.org, and you can read the Pittsburgh strike paper at unionprogress.com. In our last episode, we talked about efforts by Apple store workers to unionize here in the U.S., but Apple's labor struggles go far beyond American borders. One of the major companies contracted to manufacture iPhones in China, Foxconn, is facing scrutiny for its treatment of workers during a harsh lockdown in response to a COVID outbreak in Zhengzhou, China. Workers were placed under tight restrictions in the factory compound, reportedly being forced to take meals in their rooms, and with infected workers being subjected to quarantines and daily testing. A video shared on social media showed workers escaping the factory to walk back to their hometowns. At the same time, the company claimed it was maintaining normal operations as the workers churned out the new iPhone 14 for eager Apple fans on the other end of the supply chain. One worker named Xia told the Financial Times that there was, quote, total chaos in the dormitories, unquote. 
The outbreak that caused this turmoil in Zhengzhou was minuscule by Western standards, 167 locally transmitted infections. Yet that was enough to trigger a major lockdown under China's strict zero-COVID policy, which has come under increasing criticism. It's not unusual for workers to be subjected to such measures in China, though Foxconn, as a major multinational tech manufacturer and one of Apple's principal suppliers, has faced extra scrutiny for its treatment of workers at its gigantic factories. In the 2010s, there was a string of high-profile worker suicides, and the watchdog group China Labor Watch reported extremely long workdays for Foxconn, assembly line workers, as well as illegal exploitation of so-called student interns and temporary workers. Amid the chaos at the Zhengzhou factory, Apple, for its part, has responded with a brief statement acknowledging that the supplier factory has been impacted by a COVID outbreak and saying, quote, the facility is currently operating at significantly reduced capacity. As we have done throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we are prioritizing the health and safety of the workers in our supply chain, unquote. But according to a letter signed by a number of labor and human rights advocacy organizations, the reality at the factory is far different. They wrote in an online petition, quote, Some workers complained on social media that infected workers have been locked in their dormitories without access to medical services and supplies. For those who have not been infected, if they do not go to work, then they cannot receive meal boxes, which are distributed after work only. Since the restaurants around the area have all shut down, workers are forced to go out to work just to get the food. They also lack adequate protective gear, and the management has even requested some workers to rest in the workshop itself. Workers who tried to leave were impeded, sometimes by force. Videos online have shown workers, eager to escape the virus, hunger, and violence in the factory, running away in severe conditions and long journeys, unquote. And as a side note, there's also a local angle on the story. A student activist that I know at my current institution, Cornell University, helped organize a solidarity protest at the Fifth Avenue Apple Store in Manhattan last Sunday. They decried, quote-unquote, forced labor, claiming that Foxconn workers were essentially being coerced into making iPhones in exchange for food. It's not clear from Apple's statement whether it is responding directly to the international attention that the Zhengzhou factory has been getting. It's possible that it is trying to stave off more negative publicity from its partnership with Foxconn. But the company has yet to respond to the questions posed by the authors of the petitions, such as, Quote, who authorized the order to forbid the workers from leaving the factory in October? Why was there chaos over the distribution of basic necessities in the factory area? What were Foxconn's standards for workers' housing conditions during isolation? Unquote. The activists also demanded that Apple and Foxconn, quote, respect that workers' rights are more important than the company's profit, that workers' freedoms and health are more important than the employer's production plan, unquote. So as the holidays approach and the lockdown in Zhengzhou wears on, You might want to keep these workers in mind if you give or receive one of those shiny new iPhone 14s this holiday season. While the pandemic brought turmoil and massive job loss to many sectors of the economy, some industries flourished during the many months of lockdowns, quarantines, and remote work and schooling. Zoom and Amazon, for instance, saw business boom as many of us came to rely on them as basic means of communication and consumption during lockdowns. And when it came to basic sustenance when we were stuck indoors, many replaced their daily jaunt to their favorite lunch spot or corner eatery with an online order from a platform like Grubhub, DoorDash, or Uber Eats. And that means that while you were shielding yourself at home from COVID-19, somebody was zipping through the streets on a bike to deliver your meal and typically earning very little money doing it. Food couriers became part of the essential workforce of the pandemic, though they have generally not gotten nearly as much appreciation as, say, hospital workers and first responders. 
Nonetheless, they also toiled around the clock, often putting their own health at risk to serve the public. The pandemic led to two trends among food delivery gig workers. First, with many people seeking work after restaurants and other service businesses shuttered, the ranks of door dashers and grub hubbers expanded massively, as did the health and safety risks endemic to their trade. Second, many of these careers began organizing to improve their pay and to seek more protections at work. This was a global phenomenon, and it sparked innovative ways of networking, mobilizing, and even striking for workers who discovered that they could use their phones not just to pick up delivery gigs, but also to connect with their fellow couriers and talk about how they could act collectively. First, I spoke with Antonio Solis. He's a member of Los Deliveristas Unidos, an organization of app-based delivery workers in New York City, many of them Spanish-speaking immigrants. The group has partnered with the local worker center Worker Justice Project to pressure the city government to enact legislation providing some basic labor protections to delivery workers. Can you talk about how the pandemic affected your job? If you can think back to early 2020, how did things change for you and the other delivery workers? Hello, my name is Antonio Solis. I'm an organizer here in Astoria, Queens. The pandemic was really complicated for us. I used to work in a restaurant, but because so many restaurants closed during the pandemic, we started doing app delivery work. And that's what we are still doing now. And at that point, when you switched to the app, what did you realize about uh, the work? Or was it what you were expecting? Or did anything surprise you about um, what it was like to be a delivery worker um, in the middle of the lockdown? Yes, definitely. Before you start working for the apps, you think everything is going to be good. You're going to do well. But when I started doing delivery, I realized that we have to face lots of different situations like tip theft, wage theft traffic, crime, even the police. And then there's the weather, which can be very severe here. So you experience all kinds of dangerous situations and risks in the streets. And when you started using the app, were you able to make enough money to make ends meet for you? Because I imagine it probably didn't pay the same way that your previous work had done. So um, was that was that hard to adjust? Of course, it was tough starting out. At first, I didn't really know how to use the apps, so I had to get used to that. And then were all the expenses starting out. You have to buy a scooter, you have to insure it, you have to buy a helmet and all the other accessories we use on the street. And of course, we still had to pay rent. So it was hard at first. But 
But seeing all these needs that we had, we decided to get organized, to fight against wage, theft and other issues. Did you have to deal with wage theft yourself? Or um, I guess how big a problem was it among you and your co-workers? And I guess before you organized, would you just have to deal with it on your own? Could you complain to anyone when someone didn't pay you enough or when someone refused to pay you? Did you have any kind of recourse or um, anyone to turn to? Antes que before we started organizing in the streets with the workers justice project we didn't have anybody to talk to or complain to at that point our main concern was just to keep working and earn money we didn't complain to anyone because our boss was the app, and if we complained, they might deactivate us. And can you give me a sense of what the wages were like? You know, how many hours did you have to work in order to um, be able to cover your needs and cover your expenses? Were you working more hours than you did at your previous job or uh, fewer? And see. No, there isn't that much of difference between doing delivery for a restaurant and doing it for the app. The difference is that now we have to work many more hours to be able to earn a little more than we did at the restaurants. We have to be in the street all day long and cover all the expenses we have for our bikes. We participated in a study that showed we were earning $7 an hour. That's outrageous. Last year, we were treated as the heroes of the pandemic, and now we don't even make minimum wage. So that's what we're fighting for right now, to get the wage we deserve. When everything was locked down, did the apps do anything to help you protect your health? You know, did they give you protective equipment or um, were you or all the workers sort of on their own? And I guess, um, did people get sick as a result of working through that time period? I have to say that question makes me laugh a little because the apps didn't do a thing. When someone had an accident, the first thing they would ask was whether the food was okay. That was the first thing they asked. They never asked if we were okay. They never came to check on us or helped with our medical bills. They never paid anything when there was an accident. And that's still what they're doing. They're only worried about what goes into their pockets. They haven't given us any protective equipment at all. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. And um, are, uh, I was going to ask if, it, you know, if workers got sick, 
um, you know, people are still getting sick in the city. So in terms of the impact on your health, did you end up uh, dealing with the consequences of that? Many did get sick with COVID, but also many got into accidents. Unfortunately, in the last year or so, 19 of my co-workers died in the streets. And some people I know have died from COVID. And people continue to get injured and die, and I don't think the apps really care. You started organizing, I think, on WhatsApp. I guess who came up with the idea and um, when did you reach out to the Workers' Justice Project? Well, originally it was Ligia Walpa, the director of Workers' Justice Project, who helped us start organizing in the streets. We met her at a march and she started to talk to us about the power we could have by organizing. And that's what we've been figuring out little by little. We have big WhatsApp groups where we communicate with all of our comrades. We have the Deliberistas Unidos Facebook page. We have GPS groups, radio groups. We have a lot of tools to organize ourselves and take care of each other out here in the streets. Early on, we began to organize ourselves. We had a small group here of fellow workers, friends, that came from the same part of Mexico. And we started to organize because we were having issues with crime. They were stealing our scooters or bikes, and that's why we got a small group together. There were like 30 or 40 of us. That's how it all started, here in Astoria. And it grew with the Workers' Justice Project and the rest of our friends. Most of us were Mexican, from the state of Veracruz, and some of us came from the same town. But I saw in the street that not only we were victims of robberies, but also the other comrades that we didn't know. So after we started to organize and everything, I got to know more groups, I got to know more comrades. So through WhatsApp and things like that, that's how we became a brother group, including lots of different delivery workers, no matter where they were from, no matter the country or where they lived. So that's how this network grew here in Queens. When you were reaching out to people, was it just like you would you would see a delivery worker out on the street, like just on their bike, and you would just you know tag them and be like, "Hey, I'm I'm doing this," or or was it like uh, you know you would just build the network out because um, you know people would know other people and they would get their friends or um, their coworkers to join? Uh, like, how did you actually do the building of that network? 
que me rechazaran si los invitaba a formar parte de los Estados Unidos, pero... When I started, I was afraid that people would reject me if I invited them to be part of Los Deliberistas Unidos. But seeing all of their needs, I was gaining more confidence and I saw all the potential that we have organized here. So I invited them to join, to be part of the WhatsApp groups, inviting them to the offices of the Workers' Justice Project. They would see that we, as an organization, could help them get things, with the lawyer, for example, or even just getting an ID. So I was adding them, convincing them to join, so that they would know that they were not alone in this country that just because they were undocumented, it wasn't a reason for us not to have rights. Like if we got in an accident, we could find a lawyer. If someone got their bike stolen, I would add them to WhatsApp so they would join and we would all join together. So that's how we were gaining more people and they started believing in the project of Los Deliberistas Unidos. It's not just about words, it's about action. That's how we've been winning over our comrades here in Queens. And of course, there's a lot of work to be done, but I feel that we're on the right track. You pointed out that some of the issues involved just, you know, safety on the street, uh, getting your bike stolen and things like this. How did you approach the... um, the advocacy around that? I mean, what were you, what kinds of measures did you want to see and, and whose responsibility do you think it is to uh, provide those protections? Because like you said, your your boss is the delivery app, right? So, um, so I guess, who did you want to put pressure on um, around these safety issues? Bueno, para combatir eso ha sido complicado. Fighting that has been really complicated. It's been difficult because, well, dealing with thieves is dangerous. We risk our lives when we try to recover a bike. We use the WhatsApp groups. I try to tell the guys to use the GPS to track the bikes. The police cooperate sometimes, but still not as much as we would like. We've even gone to the Bronx ourselves to bring back a stolen bike. So we're working on it. We have GPS, the radio, WhatsApp, but we would like the police to cooperate more with us and act faster. Robberies are daily, with guns, even with knives. And the police still don't do anything about it. We know that if they arrive, they will be an hour too late. So this fills us with uncertainty, with more fear, because if we don't trust the police, who are we going to trust? We can't take justice into our own hands because it's too dangerous. We are not the police. We don't want to be the police. We would like the police to cooperate more with us and us with them. 
We don't want to have to risk our lives because we're trying to recover what is ours, the tool we use for work every day. Can you talk more about the city council's role in addressing you know, safety and all the other issues that you're talking about? Uh, the city council uh, last year passed some legislation that was pretty unprecedented. Right? Um, can you talk about the process of getting the city council to enact those policies? And I guess in the past year, um, what has come of it? Have you seen uh, that legislation actually getting enforced or, um, you know, what has changed about your job as a result? We started working with the city council two years ago to pass some laws that could help us. One of them is about access to bathrooms, which is something many of our co-workers still struggle with. The restaurants still don't allow us to use the bathroom. It's totally unreasonable. We're also working on limiting the distance the apps require us to go. We're still trying to get that enforced. And for next year, we're working with the city to finally put in place a minimum wage. I'm confident we can win that too. So in the past year, have the apps changed the way they work in response to the legislation? Te voy a ser sincero, no han cambiado para nada. I'll be honest with you, they haven't changed at all. The apps have been violating the law. They keep stealing our tips, they keep deactivating and closing our accounts in retaliation. So this is another fight we have to have. The enforcement isn't happening, so the apps keep doing what they want. We have to keep up the pressure to make them comply because they've already taken so much from us. We need a living wage. Just to clarify, which apps are these? Um, you're, it seems like the workers are on a bunch of different apps. So maybe you could just point out, you know, for the listeners, which ones, um, which ones you're using. It's Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber that are not doing what they need to do. They don't respect the law, and they feel that they can do whatever they want. So that's why we have to continue this fight. When you say that they close people's accounts in retaliation, what are they retaliating for? Do you think you're being targeted because you're organizing, or are they uh, punishing you for something else? We're not sure why they're doing this, but what I do know is that they feel they can do whatever they want because we don't have a formal union that represents us. They feel they can deactivate us when they don't need us. It's complicated because even if you're someone who's accepting all the orders you get and you have a really good rating, Sometimes they still deactivate you, and they don't explain why. 
They just block us without sending a message. So this is why we need to sit down with the company so they can actually explain to us why they're doing this. So you've uh, contacted these companies and uh, said that you want to meet with them and have, have they refused or um, what is what is your interaction been like with them, if any? We haven't met with the companies directly. It's complex to negotiate with them because, as I said, we're not a formal union yet. We're hoping that once we formalize our union, we can meet with them. But for now, no. I haven't talked to them directly. Yeah, under the law, it's hard actually for delivery workers to get a formal union because they're often not considered employees of these platforms. Um, is that part of the law that you would like to change in the long term? Because it seems like a lot of these problems are kind of uh, rooted in the fact that, you know, you're not really recognized as the workers of these companies. So uh, is that something that you hope will change? Um, because it seems like a lot of problems are related to the fact that you're not recognized as employees. Este, no, pues, right now, the priority for us is forming our union. That's the main goal of Los Deliberistas Unidos, so that we can put more pressure on the companies and they listen more to our demands. I think the city in, in the past few months has been trying to kind of return to normal, right? sort of at least, uh, you know, uh, pretend that the pandemic is kind of over um, or at least, you know, try to get everyone back to work. Has that affected your your organizing? I, I guess I, I, I just think that it, it seems like there was a lot of energy around this last year in the city council. Are you concerned at all that maybe now people think, oh, the pandemic is over, we can move on, that maybe people, uh, politicians won't be as willing to listen to delivery workers? Right now, we have a lot of energy. Now more than ever, our fight is to pressure the city to guarantee a living wage. And actually, I think we're stronger than ever. And we have lots of politicians still standing with us, supporting us. That gives me more hope and more motivation to move forward. Earlier in the pandemic, there was a lot of emphasis on sort of essential workers, right? And there are actually a lot of workers who were calling for some kind of immigration relief or some kind of protection for people um, who are undocumented if they served as an essential worker during the pandemic. So it seems like, you know, a lot of the political attention around the pandemic has faded now, but is it also your hope that for workers who are undocumented that you know they can be acknowledged somehow or that they they're protected as as workers from deportation or any kind of consequence like that for their immigration status. 
That would be great if they could help us regulate our immigration status. I mean, that's a dream. It's everybody's dream, but sometimes, instead of the dream, we find ourselves living a nightmare. So yes, let's hope that happens. I'm not focused on that, but definitely it's something I've thought about. How great it would be if everyone's status could be regularized. Do you think that there could be a time when you could organize a strike or maybe call for a boycott or do something kind of drastic like that to make the platforms recognize your your demands? Of course, that would be the right way to go. It would be great to boycott the company, to make our demands clear, and to show them our reality with real numbers and data about what we're going through on the street. Sometimes it seems like they think that deliveries are being done by robots or something. That nothing happens to us when it snows or when it rains. They just worry that the food arrives and they don't worry about us. So we need to find a way to make sure they take care of us and stop blocking us from the apps. And lastly, there are, um, I know that there have been efforts to organize delivery workers and other app-based workers in other cities, uh, even around the world. Do you hope that other delivery workers around the world can maybe uh, follow your example or maybe you've learned something from other efforts around the world or, you know, I guess like how, how do you hope uh, this can become kind of a, a global movement? Oh, claro que sí. Hasta donde yo sé, ahorita hay muchos compañeros que se están... Yes, of course. Actually, I know people who are organizing in Mexico. I have a friend who is doing good work there in Mexico City. We even have comrades in Chile and Argentina. I don't know about other countries, but I'm so proud to see that we're an example to follow. And most importantly, for people to know that when we organize from the street, we have a lot of power. And what we're asking is for something fundamental to our day-to-day survival. That was Antonio Solis of Los Deliveristas Unidos. While Los Deliveristas are breaking ground for gig workers in New York, delivery workers around the world have also been mobilizing. I spoke with Ahmed, Hafezi, and John Kirk, two Londoners who work for a food delivery app called Deliveroo. They are also organizers with the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain, or IWGB, a grassroots group that represents precarious workers from various sectors, engaging in impact litigation as well as direct actions. They helped organize street protests by Deliveroo couriers in several British cities in 2021. We're starting with John explaining some of the issues that motivated delivery workers to start organizing in the early days of the pandemic. I'm John. Uh, We both started during the pandemic, so it's kind of hard to say how it changed from before to after. But I remember we were like the only people in the streets and uh, it was hard to get orders. But a lot of people, like a lot of delivery workers, I know actually made like loads of money during the pandemic. Like they might have been on different vehicles, like, like motorbikes, or they might have worked in different areas. But yeah, for a lot of bicycle delivery riders, it was hard to to make enough money. 
Yeah, this is Ahmed. I'll say that, yeah, I definitely started working during the pandemic, but I also started working because of the pandemic. Uh, so like, I didn't have a job. And obviously, a lot of employers had kind of shut down applications. And I live at home with my grandmother. I didn't want to go work in the supermarket, right, which was the main other industry that was hiring at the time. So that's why I, the, the reason I actually started doing this work was because of the pandemic. I was thinking that delivery workers would probably see a lot more business during the pandemic because everyone was ordering in. But is that not the case? Or you just <laughs> you're just struggling to get orders on the app that you're using? I think the companies themselves like had a lot more orders and made a lot of profit during the pandemic. Um, and like I think for a lot of motorbike riders, it was like quite a lucrative time, but for was it just by I mean like for bicycle riders it, we, it was a lot of just waiting around yeah I, I mean me personally I made probably more money then than I did after like per hour and whatnot but it's because the main app here or one of the main apps here Deliveroo they have a vehicle priority system so if you're a bicycle you get the least amount of orders and then if you're a car or an e-bike you get um or a motorcycle you get higher priority and so a lot of people definitely look back especially today where you know the fees have been cut and although we're hitting winter and work's coming back uh in the summer and earlier on in the year it was a lot less busy compared to the pandemic so a lot of people were looking back to those times as kind of the golden time where they'd be able to make a lot more money than they do today the gravy train yeah yeah because people were working from home a lot more i mean they still are but they were working from home and also they were on furlough here and there was all the government support so they yeah. were ordering a lot more and now especially in the uk we're in a big economic crisis and the first thing people are, are cutting is takeaways yeah can you give people a sense of like the kind of hours you were working? I mean, I assume that even when you're waiting for orders, that's still time that you're spending like on the app and outside, right? So what was what was a typical work day or what is a typical work day for you now? So for me personally, at the moment, I work part time. But during the pandemic, I was working a lot more. But because of my personal cases, I didn't have to work like 60 hour weeks like a lot of people because I live with my parents. Um, and they were all full-time employed during that time. So I personally, during the pandemic, I was working about 20 to 30 hours a week. But obviously that is probably the exception to, to a lot of people who are having to work like, yeah, at minimum 40 hours a week. But, you know, because you can work as much as you can, people will really push it because when the fees go down, the only way you can make your targets is to work more. So we, as a union, we're, a lot of our members are working, you know, at least 50, 60 hour weeks, sometimes even more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and John, were you also working part-time or full-time? Yeah, I was working full-time during the pandemic, like probably like 30 to 35 hours a week. I was working like relatively normal hours. So like lunches and dinner times. When things started opening up, I kind of just shifted to working like kind of crazy hours, like very like on the weekends, because basically on the weekends, um, they would put boosts on, um, on most of the apps. So you'd get more per order. Um, and I work in like a very like bustling, like big nighttime economy area. Um, so like people would just be out like drinking and stuff. And I'd be working until like three, four in the morning. Um, just cause like you could make better money then. 
you're delivering to people at home or you're just like delivering to people who are just ordering stuff on the street? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was mostly to people's homes, but um, it was like a lot of like the post club crowd. And yeah, occasionally you would deliver to stuff to people on the street, but that was like an occasional thing. So what was, uh, aside from just, you know, the sort of low pay, I guess, like, what did you realize about the working conditions that made you uh, want to start organizing? Or um, what made you question <laughs> what, um, what delivery was making its workers do? Well, for me, the number one thing that pissed me off was toilets. Um, that was honestly like the main impetus for me to, um, to, to join the union. Um, because basically, um, during a lockdown, um, like legally, like if you were picking up an order from a restaurant or a shop, they had an obligation to let you use a toilet. Um, and we had a letter from the HSE, which is the health and safety executive, which basically is like a government body. And it like, it like authorized us. It's like showed if we showed it to people at a shop, we could, we would be like, look, you have to let us use a toilet. But like 90% of the time, they just ignored it. Um, you wouldn't use a toilet and you would just have to like go piss in a bush somewhere. Like for women, for women, even like way worse uh, a situation. And for me, yeah, it just pissed me off more than anything because not only was it illegal, it's like, you know, you're denying somebody who's doing you a service, like a basic human right. And... I assume that people complained to Deliveroo. Did they respond at all? Or how did they handle complaints from workers? I don't know. The the thing about Deliveroo is that like it's so it's so distant. You like if you complain about something, it's so hard to get a response. Um and the the other thing is they make themselves as not responsible as possible. So we didn't even know who was the like right authority to complain to. Are we supposed to just complain to the like local council um or like like is it is it the apps that we're supposed to complain to are the apps going to do anything if we complain about a restaurant not letting people use the toilet like nah probably not so yeah i don't i don't know if Deliveroo received any of that so at what point did you start getting involved with uh the iwgb uh that was like uh late 2020 i think and did they approach you or did you approach that or did you just hear like through word of mouth that they were organizing workers? Nah, what had happened was um, they put a lot of stickers up in like uh, restaurants and kitchens where a lot of delivery drivers were um, kind of like recruitment stickers. And I saw one of them and I followed the link to the website and I was like, yeah, I feel like, you know, we need we need something like this. So uh, that was it. Yeah. And so at that point, did you start to uh, reach out to other delivery workers or um, how did you go about like trying to organize? To be honest, I didn't really engage with the with the union or like organizing for quite a while. I think um, the first thing that like, like engaged a lot of a lot of people in the union at that time was um, we were preparing for a strike on delivery's IPO day. Um, and like in the pre- preparation for that and the run up to that was when like, like I, start, I started attending meetings and like trying to figure out like how to make things better. And what was the motivation behind the strike? What were your demands or what was what spurred it? So what spurred it was that Deliveroo was going public on that day. Um, 
And the demands were like the real like bread and butter stuff, like pay, better pay, better safety, and what like respect. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> better conditions, yeah. How did you, I guess uh, people will be curious about how delivery workers go on strike. Do you all just sort of sign out of the app and like no one can deliver anything for um, like a full day or how does it work? It, it varies really. So when we were doing the IPO strike, which is also when I started to get more involved, um, mainly because there were people from the union who were reaching out to us, like they were giving us phone calls, just like cold calling us, knowing that we had joined the union. Uh, and then kind of encouraging us to come to meetings and things. And so when we were thinking about how we do the strike, we kind of thought about how we can turn the model against them, where I'm sure it's the same in the US, but here if you're an employee and you want to go on strike, there's a whole legal process you have to follow and you have to ballot and this kind of thing. Whereas because we're technically self-employed, we can do what we want in a way and, and it's not, uh, legally considered the same as a kind of unionized set of workers taking action industrially. So we were just like, yeah, we're going to log off the app. Uh, and that's how we sold it. We log off the app um, and we did a motorcade because obviously, even though we're very public in the fact that we're on the streets doing the work all the time, it's not always clear that we're not working, right? Because we don't have a fixed workplace. And so us logging off, we could just be at home and there's no visible element to the strike. So we had a motorcade where the motorcyclists, the cyclists, um, and the e-bike people, of course, they were, we, we had a route set out through London where we stopped at some key points. So we went to Deliveroo's headquarters. We went to the London Stock Exchange, which is where they were um, doing the IPO. I think we even stopped at like JP Morgan, who were helping out uh, on the day with the, some of the like underwriting of the, the process. Um, and every time, you know, we lit flares, we had people give speeches, like they're going on the stock market personally. And as a company, they're bringing in so much money at the same time that they're cutting fees and pushing down the conditions of the people who make their business run. Were there any particular conditions that you objected to? I guess I'm thinking that like, you know, the app, it's since you're technically self-employed, uh, you know, it operates on this idea that, you know, you can work whenever you want and it's flexible. So like, how do you feel like the app ended up sort of functionally kind of being uh, oppressive or feeling coercive for folks? Um, I think if you speak to gig workers and myself included, the, the main number one, 100% all the time is always pay. Like every single um, grievance I feel goes through that lens of pay in one way or another. Um, because you're only paid by delivery, uh, it, it, that model itself just leads to so many other things. For example, um, as John was saying, they have ways of making you stay out later and later or coming out at specific times. So it's happened so many times where you'll be working past midnight and they'll have this thing on Uber, for example, called a quest, where if you complete eight or 10 or 12 orders, they'll give you like a, a bonus amount. And they're very strategic around that where It'll encourage you to stay out late and before you know it, you've worked like 14 hours, right? Or you'll be rushing to complete more orders in the time frame because you know that you can get the bonus and you can get more money because you'll be having completed more orders. And that will, you know, that puts you at risk on the streets in terms of your safety. 
and you're not necessarily aware of that, right? Like most people don't aren't aren't thinking about, damn, I'm like running this red when I shouldn't have because I'm just trying to get the next order. It's just like you're you're in that machine mentality where the, the app is kind of pushing you onto the next order. And there's an adrenaline element to it. It's like a whole game, really. And it, it's like a positive psychological thing going on in the brain. But at the same time, if you sit back and re- think, of, wow, I, like that was my shift today, you kind of realize this is not really a, a healthy or positive way to work. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like a kind of like a rat in a maze or something. I keep giving you like little bait to keep you going. Yeah. Do you feel like it's when you describe it as a game, I, I was just thinking that it's sort of like a video game. Like, you know, just, you know, just as you're about to log off, there's like, you know, there's like a new thing that they give yeah, you to like yeah. keep you on for a few more minutes. So, I mean, do you feel like it, they, uh, I guess they sort of gamify your, uh, the whole work process, right? Um, because you never really know what's coming. Yeah, definitely. It's like GTA. It's like doing taxi missions on GTA. <laughs> it's just like that. Yeah. The same kind of buzz. Except in the end, you're just, uh, <laughs> you're, you're not making as much money as you want to anyway. So yeah, uh, it's, it's not like you don't even make it to the next level. You're just, yeah. Just I mean, they're, 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 they're quite sneaky about it in a way. I mean, it's not even intentional on a given day, but you will, there will be days where for whatever reason, you just earn like a good amount of money, right? And then you think like, oh, okay, that's going to happen next week. And then it might be the exact same conditions, right? For example, it might be raining and, you know, there might be some holiday. So people are like ordering takeout more. But for whatever reason, you just don't get as many orders that day. And so they'll kind of play you with good days and bad days. And again, I don't think it's intentional on a given basis. It's just the nature of like the the way the work is distributed. Yeah. It's hard to fix it all like that. You know, it feels like a like a slot machine or something like you know for every every you know 50,000 quarters you put in like occasionally they'll be you'll hit the jackpot um yeah. so you know I'm, I'm thinking like it it takes a lot to organize especially in this way with like independent workers do you ever feel like there are workers who I don't know like they'd just rather quit than put up with the crappy conditions and try to make them better um like I don't know when you when you talk to other workers how do you um get them to like you know commit to this and kind of want to uh want to improve conditions for everyone rather than just be like uh screw this I'm going to get a new job. Yeah, I mean I think that's the prevailing uh sentiment amongst a lot of people is exactly what you just said that they don't really have that uh deep connection to the job where they feel like they want to um, you know, put the stakes in and be like, this is my struggle. Like most people are like, I'm thinking this is something I'm going to do for a couple of months. Um, you know, I'm not really thinking about kicking up a fuss here. I'm just, you know, putting my head down and working. And then obviously you've got the added layer where probably the majority of the workforce are migrants, not born in this country. And this is one of their main accesses to work and, and to, pay, to to money is is doing this job. And so then you will have hesitancy about kind of taking action in that sense or even just coming together because people don't want to put anything at risk, whether it's their immigration status or just their general reason for being in this country to make money. They they don't have other options. Uh, so it is really difficult. But I think from my experience doing this stuff, it, a lot of times it's trying to understand who has the strongest connection to their job. So one thing we found in the union is that um, – car drivers tend to be more open to kind of the union mentality because in a way they're like, they may have invested in a vehicle just to do this job, 
but also they'll work in towns, for example, where we have a lot of members in the north of England called, in a town called Sheffield, where like they're, we don't have a fixed workplace, but they have the closest thing to it because they work in a very compact environment, in cars, they're constantly seeing each other. Um, they have to pay fuel costs and all of these other elements that make them kind of have a stronger connection to the job. Uh, and it's something that they see themselves doing for, you know, at least the immediate future, if not like a couple of years down the line. So it is really difficult having these conversations. Um, but we always try to appeal to like, um, you know, the future and, and to say that this is a job that a lot of people enjoy and for various reasons and that attracts people who may not necessarily want to go into a different industry because you are like essentially free out in the open, doing your own thing, working on your own. And so what we need to do is come together to actually improve the conditions so that this can be a viable job for people rather than just something that is uh, you do when you in between jobs or if you're an undocumented person. So we appeal to that like bigger, bigger sense of the future, really. Yeah, I guess I would say that um, like what I've done as like uh, a staff organizer since I started working for the union is like more focused on like um, like local issues like and then like things like parking parking is an issue like pretty much everywhere where there's like a large concentration of drivers like parking tickets harassment from parking enforcement even police moving um drivers on and stuff like that and um basically like the idea is that like if you start on a local issue you can build up solid bases um of workers in areas that like could connect when it comes to wanting to do a big like a coordinated national strike for pay. Yeah. So in terms of the path forward for the union and, and for the workers too, are you, uh, where are you trying to kind of uh, build leverage now? Are you uh, trying to, are you, I guess like, are your campaigns targeting Deliveroo directly, like the executives to get them to change their practices or the way the app works? Are you talking to your local authorities like your local council to get them to try to pass regulations or um like is there legislation uh that you're trying to um get done because i think uh one of the struggles for the delivery workers in new york city is just that you know they have um like the city council passed legislation trying to sort of regulate this industry but um, you know, it's just one city, you know, whereas the app is like, you know, across the country or, you know, all over the continent. So um, like what what level are you trying to exert pressure on? So uh, as a union, um, there is a lot going on in the background that a lot of people, the workers aren't necessarily engaged with on a daily basis. So mainly legal cases. So we have had legal cases against several companies. Uh, around essentially employment status. So what we have in the UK is a third status that already exists by law where you can still be considered self-employed, but you get certain fundamental rights like a guaranteed minimum wage um, and holiday pay and pension and things that you wouldn't otherwise get if you're a regular self-employed worker. So we have had cases where we're trying to make the case that this is what we are, like by our contract and by the way we work, this is legally what we should be classified as. And so we're, that's one way we work with it. But um, it, it just can be a little bit controversial sometimes because uh, if you speak to a lot of workers on the ground, they don't necessarily um, 
on the one hand relate to it, but on the other hand, they, they're kind of happy with the status in a way in that they don't want to become employees and that they see sometimes any kind of implementation of a legal ruling around this worker status would actually lead to their work being changed because the apps would then respond if they ever implemented a, a positive ruling, for example, by um, limiting, for example, the amount, whether you can log in or not, like now, like I can log in now if I want to, but if they are then given the obligation to pay everybody who's logged in minimum wage, then it's likely they will restrict that access. Um, so it is a bit of a controversial situation and it's something we kind of try to, like we don't put a lot of effort into it as like union reps and engaged members with, with the legal stuff. Um, Organising wise, it's sort of what John is saying that we're, we're, we're focusing more on these smaller issues in the UK, we don't really have like a local structure where we could regulate them in terms of legislation, but we do have the ability to like win a parking campaign, for example, which John has done with some people. He was, maybe you can talk about it later, but he was, he was working um, in an area where he helped organize riders to uh, basically, they, they want a, a place to shelter and rest, which I know they did in New York as well, right? But this was done through like collective action and putting pressure on restaurants, the local authorities, the apps as well. Um, and then recently we have had this wave of wildcat strikes around the country of people not connected to any kind of union, just uh, mostly car drivers basically saying we've had enough, like we've taken so much of a beating, we've carried you your companies through the last couple of years and we've seen only seen a worsening of, of pay and conditions. We're having to work longer hours, fuel costs are crazy. And so they've just been like, yeah, we're going to go on strike for a whole week or a couple of days. And it, it's totally uncoordinated. So what we're trying to do is position ourselves as people who've been doing this for quite a long time, both the work and the organizing, to say that we're the, we're the like vehicle for coordinating all these different towns. And everybody can still keep doing their autonomous organizing and their local demands. But ultimately, if we're ever going to win, we need to do something coordinated across the country. And then that will push, you know, the, the apps to do something because here in this country, like legally, there's, it's going to take years, if anything, for, for that to change. And so the only way the companies could ever, at minimally, just even improve fees would be through some national, nationally coordinated collective action. When those wildcat strikes happen or anytime there's like a protest like that, does the company ever respond or change anything? Or is it more just like an expression of workers being pissed off? Yeah. So when it comes to a lot of the strikes we've been involved, we had a huge strike in Sheffield last year that went on for a couple of months even. And, you know, we were quite uh, strategic around it where we had it focused on one specific app. So people were allowed to drive on other apps and also specific times of the day. So it wasn't just cutting people's income off. Like we were looking to make it sustainable so that we could have that pressure in the long term. So in Sheffield, you know, and in other places where we've done action, they don't really want to acknowledge us too much because it validates us. Like they they get so much benefits from uh, the impression that taking any kind of action is useless, right? That is actually quite a common refrain you get from workers where they're like, what's the point? They're not going to do anything. But they know that anytime they say, they, they make a positive response to a, to action that that will validate it and make people sort of think that they should do even more. So they're very strategic around like not really responding. So with the IPO stuff, we had all these demands around like, um you know, the rights, the holiday pay, pensions and things. And they just completely ignore us. And then a couple of, not even a couple of months, probably like one or two months really 
afterwards they announced that they're they're rolling out um essentially kind of like a health insurance program uh for certain medical costs and uh you know for for newborn if you have a kid you get a payment and you get this insurance free basically um they even announced one of our demands was around like safety training um and they even rolled that out but they don't want to credit us because obviously it, it validates the idea that if you come together and take action uh you'll you'll end up winning yeah so so like i guess like we 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 have targets at different levels so like the ipo action and what ahmed was talking about with the strike strike wave we had across um the north of england were directed like at the app companies um but um like the the work i've done has been more involved with like uh local issues like parking um and like when when it comes to an issue like parking um like the council is like it's it's like it's like less of an abstract target it seems like less of a distant target um like you like like when you when you come up against parking enforcement they're like right there um you know when the police come they're right there we we you can you can reach you can reach um councillors and people who work for the councils and these local politicians in a way that you can't really reach the app um so yeah we had um a campaign against um um a council uh, in london because there's there was this one spot where lots of drivers were congregating to work um and more or less the council wanted to shift the drivers um because they they had like a big uh fund to basically pedestrianize the street gentrify the area for new wealthier residents um and the way they did it was they sent pa- pa- parking enforcement to give out like 65 pound fines to the drivers like you know oftentimes multiple times a day um they claimed that it was because of um antisocial behavioral complaints from residents um and like like this is what local councils always always seem to do is that like they 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 consider uh, delivery drivers to be like an eyesore and a nuisance so they always kind of weaponize things like complaints they always play up the amount that like delivery drivers are dis- disliked their presence is disliked by the public um uh but like it's not i, I don't yeah yeah it's not true like in the sense that like they might have been getting a few complaints but we we know that the majority of the people are supporting supportive of drivers because we've done actions against the council and like we get like hundreds of we do letter writing campaigns we get hundreds of letters coming in from local residents in support of the drivers um so like what we did in Dalston uh, um is that like um we had protests against the council basically because they wanted to move the drivers to a different area that was like very inconvenient for them um and now because of that because of the fact that the drivers like collectivize and push back against it like not only are they not getting parking tickets at anywhere near um the rate that they were before they've also been granted a space that's provided by the councils and local restaurants so that they can park and shelter at um and like these like these kinds of things are like like extremely winnable like in a way that it might not be it's it's like it's like so say winning winning pay rises from delivery or uber is like a thing that requires much more coordination on a much larger scale and we like need to build up to that. Yeah, because there's here in the states and I'm sure in the UK too there's uh sort of a big kind of uh rush to bring everything back to normal and sort of pretend the pandemic is over or that 
COVID-19 is not an issue. Is that, uh, uh, does that affect you or the way you organize? Well, I feel like here we kind of are out of the pandemic in the way that most people are thinking, and the mo- especially the companies like, you know, work's picked up and we're back into, because the pandemic had kind of uh, disrupted the normal cycle of work in, in the in the delivery with the deliveries where um usually it's way busy in winter but because of the timing of the lockdown the lockdown kind of messed with that cycle we're definitely back in the in the in the mode where if it's cold and it's november december january it's going to be busy and then the summer's kind of dead um so that that is a problem because uh that's not widely known that how sensitive the work is and the, and the pay is to like the time of the year, basically. Uh, one thing that is a positive from the pandemic, and I feel this a lot of this really comes from the work the union has done in the media and politics, has been the narrative around us kind of having this essential role or at the very least being visible and being visibly kind of a, a problem of, of labour in this country. I think that's quite cemented now and uh, for better or worse, like we, the, we're kind of like the archetypal case of exploitation now in people's minds, uh, which is is good and bad because I feel like like we're not only exploited. Like there's other elements to the story, and and people don't necessarily see themselves in that way. Like they, you know, we're we're like human. Thing. I don't know. I talk about this a lot, but um, we are like that. That narrative is definitely in place in the media and in politics. Like people know that this is a problem that needs to be dealt with um the only issue we have now in this country is i'm sure again in the u.s is that now that that is the case a lot of these other unions are have been seen as an opportunity to you know get members but also sign these agreements with these agreements with uh, employers that don't actually change anything and make them look really good but like no one's seeing any changes <laughs> uh, yeah there's been controversy in the states too about um you know how how do we kind of like take gig workers and kind of you know mainstream them or like come up with a new set of regulations so there's yeah, yeah there's been opportunism <laughs> i guess yeah 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 i'm sure but i'm saying uh a lot of that i think comes out of the pandemic and just the visibility and i mean i suppose you two are examples of maybe how um you know you wouldn't be in this gig and you probably wouldn't have joined the union unless you had started working this job during the pandemic right Mm, yeah 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 definitely and then another sign of the fact that the pandemic we're moving away from the pandemic is that a lot of people have come and gone now (laughs) like it's new faces you know like people who have actually started after the last lockdown you know people have only been working for a couple of months and you know for a while when I was working the initial months of the pandemic it was a lot of new people like myself and then some older guys who've been doing it for a couple of years but now it's you know, you're in the next cohort of drivers who are in this. You guys are like elders now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I'm like medium, medium, middle-aged. Yeah, people just asking you to tell your war stories from <laughs> the days of the lockdown or something. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right, I think that's it uh, for my questions. Is there anything else you want to add or, um, you know, people in the States, I think they'll have a sense of what Deliveroo is because we have similar stuff here but like you know anything you want uh listeners on the side of the pond to know about your your struggle or your campaigns yeah i would say that if like any of your listeners are wealthy and have a (laughs) a little bit of disposable income 
basically the union has like this thing called the solidarity squad because we are a relatively small and under-resourced union um if people would join the solidarity squad it's like a it's like a monthly donation type thing um basically to help resource the union and keep the union running and stuff like that um if people would be up for for joining that that would be like a great thing a great thing for the cause cool um, I don't know how many of our listeners are wealthy, but there are definitely going to be people willing to pay with whatever little yeah. cash they have. So, um, yeah. yes. It's, it's we're, your we're duty because the CEO of Deliveroo is American. So, I'm pretty yeah. sure yeah. as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was John Kirk and Ahmed Hafizi. They are Deliveroo couriers and members of the IWGB. And listening to these conversations, I'm thinking about how the stories are the same on so many of these apps. The risk is all on the workers, the startup costs of getting a bike, a motorbike, a car maybe. And then the app can just deactivate you without you ever being able to communicate with a human. Then the app, as the British workers note, prioritizes the people who have a car, so the people who spend the most money up front, and makes it harder for bike couriers to get work and make money, and therefore for people to jump into this work the way the companies supposedly say you can do any time, right? You're free to be on there or not on there as much as possible. But in practice, it rewards people who treat it as their full-time job, even though the companies certainly don't want to call them employees. And then the risks that the delivery drivers take just multiply, not just the risk of getting COVID, but also the risk of getting injured or killed while riding, the weather in the city, the risks of having your bike stolen and having to start all over, and the feeling that we hear echoed so often that the company just doesn't really care if you die. I started today's show talking about bathroom breaks, and it was really striking, of course, to hear all these delivery workers talk about bathroom breaks and not getting them, and the stores that they're delivering from not allowing them to use the bathroom. I was really struck by what Ahmed said. You're denying somebody who's doing you a service, a basic human right. It's no wonder that this is a galvanizing issue for lots of the workers. It is, at the end of the day, about basic dignity. And of course, the gamification of the apps, too, is really interesting. Gamification was kind of a big buzzword about 10 years ago. We hear less about it now, but it's certainly still a thing. If anything, it's more of a thing now than it was then. And I'm really struck listening to the workers talk about the apps working like a video game, incentivizing them to keep playing, except playing is, of course, a 14-hour shift. And considering the IWGB also organizes video games workers, this is a point of connection between seemingly disparate workforces. I'm also, of course, interested in the organizing, the way that Los Deliveristas moved from offline to online rather than the reverse, building trust in person and then adding people to WhatsApp groups, etc., particularly when we're talking about workers whose immigration statuses may vary. That kind of trust is really important. Rather than trying to pull people from online sources into offline work, something we'll hear about more in our next episode, it's worth thinking about the value of that in-person work still being really necessary. 
thinking about the way the IWGB works on local issues and uses that to build to the point of a national strike against these apps, working on issues in cities, even in neighborhoods, around migration, and with specific stores that treat drivers badly. I think this is relevant, of course, also to the news item I was talking about earlier with Elon Musk buying Twitter and the way people are wondering what happens if Twitter just disappears. This is a good reminder that the most important forms of trust are still being built in person and that organizing will be at its strongest when you show rather than tell other people how it works. That is kind of what we're trying to do here on Belabored, after all. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for the rest of our series on pandemic working conditions leading up to a live show at the end of the year. More details on that soon. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now to Colin Kinneborough for editing us. And most importantly, of course, to all of you who have listened to us, shared us with your friends, tweeted and Facebooked and whatever other dying social media about us for the last nine years, talked to us, written to us, and shared your stories with us. We would love it if you can rate us on whatever app you are using for your podcast, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whichever it is. It really does help us to find new listeners. We appreciate your good reviews, which are, of course, free. And for those of you who are giving us something that is not free, thanks again to all of you who have supported us financially over the past nine years over at the Descent website or at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored. We really, really, really appreciate your help keeping us doing labor journalism. Just like a lot of the workers we cover, we have not had a raise in quite a long time. The cost of living just keeps going up. Thank you for helping us keep this podcast going. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're a deliverista or a Starbucks barista, a programmer or a housekeeper, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too for as long as Twitter lasts at hashtag belabored. Thank you all for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. 